0: Well, good, morning. good morning. Let's try it again. Good morning. good morning. So glad you're here with us. Great uh, seeing those of you in the balcony and on the main floor and also those of you who are worshipping with us from home. We're glad you're here and I'm excited. We're in the first Sunday of Advent. Anybody excited about the Christmas season? First, let's just step back for a minute. How many of you had a good Thanksgiving? great. Uh, You're an active bunch. (laughs) I had an awesome Thanksgiving. This was the first one in many, many years that I was home uh, and not in Wisconsin. And so we did not have to drive several states to the south. We only had to drive a couple streets. And my niece, who is two months new into the world, was passed around like this beautiful little football And we just adored her all Thanksgiving Day long. My brother-in-law is recently retired from the service, so we got to be with him. And my daughter, Nora, she requested first thing as I was carving the turkey on Thanksgiving morning, the turkey leg. She wanted it left whole. And there she sat at the Thanksgiving table looking like a maiden from the Renaissance Festival. (laughs) Gnawing on this turkey leg, she finished the turkey leg and requested the other turkey leg and got about halfway through that one before she gave up. So it looks like we have a turkey eater for many years to come. I will tell you that uh, in a week's time since we decorated yesterday... And the day prior that I am no longer a Grinch, I am no longer a curmudgeon, I am officially in the Christmas spirit. So I wanted to apologize to those of you I called pagans last Sunday for decorating before Thanksgiving. You are not abominable. The Lord spoke that to me as I was decorating. We love you very much no matter when you decorate. So again, welcome to Grace Covenant Church. We're in our third week in the series called God Too Small. The idea that we're communicating again and again is that our perception about God matters. Our theology, our thoughts about the Lord matter. How big is God in our minds? This is paramount. And oftentimes we... In our minds, make God small, and a small God can lead to big problems. In fact, many of our spiritual problems, whether it be apathy or unhappiness or insecurity... These can absolutely stem from the likelihood of a God too small in our heads, too tidy, too inside the box, and we want to fully understand God, that's okay, that's natural, we want to explain him, we even want to predict him uh, rather predict what he'll do, but the reality is that the God of the Bible is at times confusing to us. He is especially contradicting at times of us, and boy, do we just really bristle at that. We have a hard time With that. And this is the God of the Holy Scriptures. He's often unpredictable. Jesus would say things that absolutely caught his listeners off guard. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, God is described as one who confounds the wise. Okay? Uh, In the Old Testament, King Solomon, what would he say? That the fear of the Lord, the awe of the Lord, the reverence of the Father is actually just the beginning, the beginning of wisdom. So consider this for just a moment by way of an introduction. You and I are as insignificant in terms of the scope and scale of this room as little blips. Would you agree with that? I know you may not feel like a blip. You're certainly not a blip to our Father in heaven, but compared to the size of this room, we're blips. This room, compared to the size of Cornelius, which is, we're barely in Cornelius here at Grace, is a blip. Would you agree to that? Cornelius is a blip compared to Mecklenburg County. Mecklenburg County is a a blip compared to the state of North Carolina. North Carolina is is a, a spot Uh, a, a tiny dot compared to the United States or the content of North America, which is but a blip compared to the earth, which is but a spot compared to this amazing star that is centric in our solar system called the sun. I just read this last week that if the sun were a hollow orb that... I believe it was 130 million Earths would fit inside of that. Is that not mind-numbing? That's mind-numbing. And then we, we know if we look simply, and I'm not an expert in this, but I'll tell you that the sun is an average-sized star, they say. An average-sized And I told you wrong, I told you I wasn't an expert, just so nobody leaves laughing at me. One million Earths, 1.3 million Earths would fit. Uh, Come on, God, that's less impressive, right? I mean, 1.3, not... So the sun is an average star, and then our sun is but one of many stars in the Milky Way galaxy, which is our home, and each of those stars, like the sun has on average... We learn of one or more planets that orbit that particular star. What that means is that there are potentially thousands of planetary systems like our solar system only in this galaxy. And then scientists tell us that there are, this was last year's news, there were like 160 160 billion galaxies This year's news is that there's two trillion galaxies and the universe just continues to expand. Is it just me or is God not huge? What is the theological impact of that? Well, let's see what Psalm 33 has to say. It tells us that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host, by the breath of his mouth by the breath of the Lord's mouth. Are you aware this morning that you serve a star-breathing God? That the Lord just breathed all of this into existence? Isn't that mind-boggling? Isn't that just utterly fascinating? A.W. Tozer said in a book called Knowledge of the Holy, without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. Heavenly Father, as I endeavor to speak the name of God, the Lord, this morning, I just pray that you would help me Holy Spirit, just breathe life into our text this morning. Lord, give me your passion. Lord, give me uh, an ability to teach in a way that would bring honor and glory to you. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in week one of this series, Pastor Farrell showed us how Job's view of God Was too small. Do you remember? Job effectively questioned God, and God effectively said to Job, Job, excuse me, but where were you when I made all this? Where were you when I shaped the earth? Then last week, we looked at the Israelites escaping Egypt and into the wilderness. They wanted a God that they could see rather than the one who was on the mountaintop in the billowing smoke inscribing with his own finger the Ten Commandments. And instead of God leading them around the wilderness, they wanted to take God by the hand and tote God around or what they would call God as if God were some kind of pet that they could drag from place to place, they made a graven image. This morning, we're going to take a look at the story of Gideon. The story of Gideon feels a bit like an action movie to us. Gideon is an unlikely hero whose small thoughts toward himself really mimic or stem from his small thoughts about God. However, he came to experience something that the prophet Daniel talked about. Daniel said, those who know their God will do great exploits. Gideon experienced some amazing exploits. And what we'll find is that his story quickly evolves into what feels like a movie that's too good to be true. Gideon, against all odds, will absolutely rise to the challenge and accomplish what most thought to be impossible. So the first point in today's outline is this. A big view of God allows for trials to precede triumph. A big view of God allows for trials to precede triumph. I'm going to read to you from Judges chapter 6 verses 1 through 6 and a number of other passages this morning. This is what we read. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts Caves, strongholds, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. They did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. How many of you know if verse 1 said seven years of this occurred, it's about time in verse 6 that they cry out to the Lord for help. A big view of God allows for trials to precede triumph. See, when we meet Gideon, he's in the midst of great adversity. We just read about what his family was going through they're trying to survive the attacks of this nomadic group of people who by this time have already overthrown the nation of Israel. They're seeking his family's harm, so they run up to the hill country. Maybe you're here today, and you feel like running to the hills. Maybe somebody is seeking your harm. Maybe you're in a domestic abuse kind of situation. Maybe you have a bully who's been taking you to task at school and you've told no one about it, not a counselor, not a parent, no one who could help, not a teacher. Uh, Maybe, God forbid, a family member is hurting or harming you. Don't forget today that with a big God these trials can absolutely lead to triumph. Have room in your theology for the suffering of God's people. This occurs, and so we need to carve out space for it. The Midianites would sweep into an area like locusts. They'd absolutely ravage the inhabitants of the land. The Israelites were so afraid, again, they're hiding in caves. I've been spelunking. I've done cave dwelling by choice. I have never been pushed into a cave. cave, I would imagine that is a rather uh, different experience than exploring for fun. Wouldn't you agree? The faith of the Israelites had weakened. They had become Baal worshipers. Gideon's family had become Baal worshipers. And after seven years of oppression, again, maybe that's your story. Don't let it weaken your faith. Don't let it cause you to run to other gods. My heart breaks for you if you've been in many years of trial, but I will tell you that trials can last a long time. Hang on. God can take you to triumph. For seven years, the Israelites were hunted. For seven years, they played hunger games. And we read in verse 6 that they finally cry out to the Lord for help. Number two, a big view of God thinks less on who we are and more on who we'll become. More on who will be. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, not Oprah, but Ophrah. You'll meet Oprah next week, or rather Orpah. The oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon says, Pardon me, Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Have you ever asked God this question? If you're with me, why is all this stuff happening? Where all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. How many of you have ever asked the Lord the question that I've asked the Lord, where are all the miracles today? Like, why am I not seeing miracles? God, I've tried to believe for miracles. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon says. And the Lord turns to him and says, go in the strength you have. And save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. My family is the weakest in the land. Have you ever thought my family is the weakest in the land? Don't raise your hands. Okay. Did Thanksgiving bring that thought out of uh, hopefully not? Right? He says, my family is the weakest in the land. I am the least in my family. Have you ever thought that? I'm the least talented guy in my family. I have the lowest education in my family. I'm the most socially awkward in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Notice that Gideon doesn't see anything that he has to offer God, and yet God speaks to him at the wine press and calls him what? A mighty warrior. Was that based on who Gideon was? It wasn't. It was based on who Gideon was becoming. You need to understand that God thinks less on who you are and more on who you will be. God help us pastors to see everybody as a potential elder. A potential council member, a potential youth pastor, a potential church planter. God saw the absolute best in Gideon when Gideon saw so much little in himself. And God sees the best in you when you see little in yourself. Gideon depreciates himself. Based on his clan, his family position, God looks past his weaknesses and destines him for greatness. Turn to your neighbor this morning, if you will, and say, don't depreciate yourself. Now say this, you're destined for greatness. I have a friend named Daniel Tyler from Wisconsin. And Daniel came to central Wisconsin in became a part of the church where I was a worship leader very early in my ministerial life. And Daniel quickly showed himself to be rough around the edges. He was an Arkansas boy. His mother had moved up for a medical position. And Daniel made all kinds of exorbitant claims about his accomplishments in life to the point where I wondered if what he was saying was really true. Daniel told me one day around Thanksgiving time that he was a state champion high school quarterback for his high school in Arkansas, and I pitched a little football with him, and I knew within a few throws that he was not a state championship quarterback on his high school football team. And so I went and Googled his high school, found the roster, and determined that he wasn't on it. And I began to mentor this guy, and I said to him, Daniel, I just wanted to let you know, we're forming a friendship, we're grilling out together, but you weren't the high school quarterback on your state football team, and I know that, and I'd like to invite you into a relationship of truth-telling. You're better than this. And Daniel just began to weep. Daniel said, my... My dad, Zach, beat me when I was a kid with a rod. He said, we used to go hit balls together. My brother was always more athletic. He could hit homers, I dinked infielders. My dad would pitch balls to us and my dad just kept saying again and again and again, swing harder, Daniel, swing harder. And he said, eventually I got so upset, big tears ran down my eyes standing at the plate And he came up and he grabbed my bat out of my hands and told me to sit against the fence. And he started having my brother, my older brother, pitch to me. And he just started cranking home runs, my dad did, over the fence. And he turned around and looked at me and said, this is how you hit the ball, Daniel. This is how you hit a home run. Daniel said, my dad treated me verbally, abusively, physically abusive." all of my childhood and into adulthood. He said, I have no clue who I am. And I challenged Daniel and I said, Daniel, we prayed together, I was empathetic, and I said, hey, here's what we're gonna do. I wanna challenge you to start telling the truth. This is a part of your Christ formation process. And whenever you catch yourself in a lie, I want you to tell to the person that you're telling the lie to mid-sentence, I'm sorry, I just told you a lie. And I need to get dishonesty out of my repertoire. I'm growing in Christ-likeness. Daniel finds himself, no joke, I'll bring this to a a close, this story. Not the sermon, of course, but the story. (laughs) Daniel finds himself in, in Starbucks. He's hitting on the barista behind the counter. And he's telling her about everything that he's accomplished in life. And he all of a sudden realizes that he's lying through his teeth to try to get her attention. And he says to her, I'm sorry. I need you to know that I just lied to you. I'm trying to create a culture of truth telling and, and I'm trying to become more Christ-like. Will you forgive me? And by the way, I'd like a venti mocha, right? <laughs> And I'd love to tell you that she swooned over him as a result of his growing integrity and said, Let's get married. And they ran off in the sunset. But she chuckled. It was humiliating. And that was the start of his formation of character regarding truth telling. It doesn't matter where you are, it matters where you're going. Daniel became a church planter. He's one of the best preachers I know. And I can't wait until he visits North Carolina and can fill in in this pulpit one day. God is using the man. Reaching lost people for Jesus. Where are you and where are you going? Point three, a big view of God empowers you to act on what you can't see. Act on what you can't see. Early in the morning, Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Mora. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. <laughs> I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. In other words, if you move forward with 32,000 people, they're going to think they deserve the credit. But he's a jealous God. We read this last week. God says, I want the credit. So he says, now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Imagine this. Imagine this. 22,000 men leave. And 10,000 remain. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water. I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go, he'll go. If I say this one shall not go, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. Point three is that a big view of God empowers you to act on what you cannot see. On what you absolutely cannot see. On what doesn't make sense to you. In 2001, my dad left an amazing job as a supervisor at UPS at the Charlotte hub at the airport with the responsibility of weighing these pods that they put on airplanes to send packages all over the country. And he left and went into full-time ministry with an over two-thirds pay cut because he felt like the Lord asked him to believe in what he could not see. My mother, a number of months later, would say, "'Zach, I don't even know how God's economy works.'" but we have more money in our checking account now than we ever have. God has provided for us, son. Hebrews 11, one through two says, now faith is being confident in what we hope for and certain in what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. For those of you who have played by the creek bank for quite a while, you may recognize this verse as the introductory verse in a chapter that's referred to as the hall of what? The hall of faith. Would you believe who's in the 32nd verse in Hebrews chapter 11? In the hall of faith? Who made it? Gid did. Gid made it. Gideon's in there. And God ends up using this guy, this young Israelite lacking in confidence, ultimately makes it into the hall of faith. God can accomplish more in you than you can ever imagine. Imagine the guy who led Billy Graham to Christ. Can you... you, think that he would ever imagine what God would do through Billy Graham. Last one, a big view of God leaves room for only one king. Once Gideon had fought the Midianites and he won, God... was the only king and the Israelites felt that Gideon had saved them from near certain death so that he ought to be then their king. And in some remarkable sign of maturity in Christ, Gideon responds in Judges chapter 8 verse 23 with this. You already have a king. And his name is Jesus. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's your king. You don't need me to be the king. He's the king of all kings. He's the king of the whole thing. He's top shelf. He's a one. And if we let, we, grace covenant folks, let God rule one day, hallelujah, we're going to get to enjoy the spoils of royalty because the Bible says that we're co-heirs with Christ. We're co-heirs with Christ. With Jesus, the inheritance will be shared among the saints. See, if we try to be the king of our life right now, the monarchy has a shelf life. The dictatorship has a shelf life. The autocracy has a shelf life. If we give Jesus full lordship, we're splitting a treasure trove of royal inheritance, We're gonna sing a song in conclusion and I just want to invite you this morning to worship, to reflect, to enter in. Here's the reality. Jesus says, come as you are. You don't have to get dressed up to appease Jesus. You don't have to be formal to be palatable to Jesus. You don't have to have your stuff together to impress Jesus. You can come as you are. Would you stand with me this morning?
1: In all my weakness, you are my confidence, Jesus. I come, Jesus, I come. I will. I come. In every broken place, you are my righteousness. Jesus, I come.
0: That verse from Psalm chapter 33 that we read to open the service that talks about our star-breathing God, it continues by saying this, he gathers the water of the seas into jars, he puts the deep into storehouses, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the people of the world revere him. The late A.W. Tozer said the greatness of God rouses fear within us but his goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him. He said to fear and not be afraid that is the paradox of faith. We're to fear and revere God but we're not to be afraid of him. It's like Aslan the lion we're to have this holy reverence and awe for the Creator King. You don't have to fear your trial this morning, He's big enough. Tozer also wrote, When God created the heavens and the earth, darkness was upon the face of the deep. When the eternal Son became flesh, he was carried for a time in the darkness of the sweet virgin's womb. When he died for the life of the world, it was in the darkness, seen by no one at the last. And when he arose from the dead, it was very early in the morning, in the dark. No one saw him rise. It is as if God were saying, What I am is all that need matter to you, for there lie your hope and peace. I will do what I will do, and it will all come to light at last, but how I do it is my secret, so trust me and do not be afraid. I was preparing for this morning, and I just felt the Holy Spirit say so clearly to me, tell the people that they don't have to be afraid Of the dark you don't have to fear the darkness you don't have to be afraid of the trial church family how many of you would say this morning I'm going through darkness right now I'm going through something remarkably difficult it's stretching me several hands Maybe you're like Gideon, here's another question, and you feel like you're the weakest person in your clan. Or that your clan is the weakest family in the land. If you would just be vulnerable and honest and say, I've got family stuff that I'm dealing with right now. Would you raise your hand this morning? There's just some family stuff. Everybody's got family stuff. Right now I've got some family stuff. Third, how many of you would say you're new to the Creek Bank entirely? And you've never met Jesus. The God of the Bible sent his son to love you, to die for you. We sang about that this morning. My grandfather says if you play by the creek bank long enough, you'll eventually fall in. Is there anybody here that would like to fall into God's grace this morning and just become a Christian for the very first time? To profess his lordship? to confess your sins and say, I need a savior, I need Jesus. Would you just lift your hand if that's you this morning? I'd like to become a Christian today. I'd like to know and love the God of the Bible. Awesome. Awesome, let's pray this morning. Would you bow your head? Lord, we lift up those today who are having trials and circumstances, Lord, and we're waiting on the triumph. Lord, we just pray that you would lift our heads. We pray that you would give us wings. We pray that you would carry us through these dark days. Lord, let your light shine on us this morning. Father, we pray too for those here who would say, we just have family junk right now that's driving our holiday experience. Lord, there's been disrepair. I pray, Father, that you would mend it that you would heal it. Lord, I pray that you would lead those who are most mature to apologize first, to hear your spirit press upon our conscience to say, I'm sorry, to end it, to put it to bed in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray for those who may be here who are expressing their desire to be saved by you. Lord, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit and grant them salvation and an eternal home today. We thank you, Lord. We lift you up. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.